Hello and welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio show with your host Mark Chatterton. Today we would like to welcome back onto the show the mysteries and conspiracies researcher Andy Thomas. Last time Andy talked about his book The Truth Agenda amongst other things and today he's going to talk about his new book Conspiracies which has just been published by Watkins Publishing. So a warm welcome back Andy. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. That's great. Okay, last time we spoke, you mentioned that you were working on a book about the death of Princess Diana. I guess that evolved into something a lot bigger. (laughs) Well, no, I I think I was referring to this new book, which uh, covers Princess Diana and many, many other things. She's not the primary focus of the book. No, obviously. It's an important one because things like that raise a very public awareness of conspiracy theories. Uh, And the new book is called Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, the Evidence. And what I'm trying to do is give an overview of, you know, all of these things that people hear about and doubts about people like Princess Diana or David Kelly, which is back in the news again, of course, it's 10 years ago since he uh, died in mysterious circumstances. Uh, And of course, trying to pull everything together from 9-11 to the New World Order, have to look at some classics like JFK, the moon landings, but also, you know, widening it out to look at a historical context. Conspiracies have been going on for a very long time. And when you start to look at the repeating patterns, you can begin to understand better the world we're in today. So, you know, in amongst that, of course, you're going to have things like Princess Diana and David Kelly, because when you look at the polls, uh, you discover that somewhere in the region of 90% of certainly British people believe that they were murdered. So there we are. We have conspiracy theorists uh, at the heart of our population. uh, And more people are conspiracy theorists in their thinking than the mainstream media would ever let on. So what the book Conspiracies is there to do is pull all this together in a useful way, which really takes a a long sort of hard look at all of it. Yeah, because I I noticed that you you obviously... I'll cover everything that's sort of in the 20th, 21st century, but you do go back in time and talk about Romans and um, the gunpowder plot, amongst other things. So that was deliberate just to show that conspiracies have been going on a long time. Yes, it's very important to point that out. And I think it's interesting because the modern world accepts that conspiracies used to take place in history. And we talk about things like the gunpowder plot, And, you know, if you just take the great fire of Rome, I mean, it's widely believed now, as it was at the time, that Emperor Nero pretty much sanctioned the torching of Rome because he wanted to make way for an area where he could build his own palaces. Um, So we say, well, that happened back then, but the mainstream implies that it doesn't happen now. Well, when you look at the cycles of history, you just see, in fact, the same thing happening again and again and again. And it's always denied at the time, but then years later, people look back and just presume it was a conspiracy. So that's why I include that historical context. And I talk also about, you know, some Elizabethan stuff and some of the plots and rebellions, because 
there are repeating patterns. I mean, one of the interesting things about the gunpowder plot of 1605, where some Catholic conspirators, of course involving Guy Fawkes, but many other people, when they attempted to assassinate King James I and his parliament, at the time it was pretty widely believed that they were patsies, that they'd been put up to this by the government of the day. Uh, and of course this has resonance with what goes on today in the same way many people believe that the terrorists of 9-11 were also patsies uh, and that they must have been helped by somebody on the inside so the inside job type allegations they go back a long way they've been going on for hundreds of years and it's still alive and well today and unfortunately it's still just as likely to be going on today so yeah i, I think to give historical context it is very important yeah because obviously right at the beginning you you spend a whole chapter discussing what a conspiracy theory theory is and about people who are deemed conspiracy theorists yet they still seem to get such a bad press in spite of the fact that a lot of people the majority of people do seem to believe in conspiracy theories why why is why do you think this happens I think there is a conditioning which occurs in the mainstream and from the establishment and from the media um, and it's very hard to distinguish whether the media debunks conspiracy theorists because they're being told to or because, as I suspect, it's just become a nasty habit. There, there is an academic elitism which is very powerful in the mainstream media, and you can see it all the time. The, you know, When they discuss things, for instance, about conspiracy, they never have a conspiracy theorist. They will have somebody like David Aronovich who effectively is there to debunk conspiracy theorists. They will always have a very sort of high-minded journalist or academic telling the world why conspiracy theorists are essentially psychologically damaged. None of this is fair because, yes, there are certain psychological traits to being conspiracy sort of minded, which I explore in the book, um, but that's not necessarily psychological damage. You can turn that around and see it as a gift. Certain upbringing, certain tendencies not to trust in authority can often help people see things going on around them that others cannot and it's an interesting one that you know what the academics criticize the conspiracy theorists of i.e. of having narrow views not listening to other sides of the arguments well i'm afraid the academics who condemn conspiracy are just as bad if not worse and what they forget is that conspiracy theorists very often do base their opinions on evidence not just hearsay now, yes, you get fanaticism, you get extremism, you get people believing things without good grounds. You're always going to have that. But actually, you know, a lot of it's based on very good evidence. But the academics who seem to control the media do not ever want to discuss the uh the evidence. And it's interesting. I mean, I quote that there, there was uh, the, the British Humanist Association had a conference a couple of years back to actually discuss conspiracy theories. But in fact, when people got there, it turned out they were there pretty much just to debunk the mindset of conspiracy. And one of the speakers actually said, well, we're not here today to discuss the evidence. 
well, unless you can discuss the evidence, none of it means anything. And that's the problem. Critics of conspiracy theories are never open to actually looking at the evidence. So what I try to do in the conspiracies book is to open this argument up and be real. You know, there are certain criticisms you can have towards the conspiracy mindset, of course. But equally to say, but yes, look at the evidence, look what's going on. And... If you just take the corruption, just the everyday sleaze of just normal politics, whether it be on parish councils or in the corporate world or in parliament, um, it goes on all the time. We know this. So to think that there aren't also deeper, wider conspiracies going on is foolish. And if the authorities don't want conspiracy theories, then they better address some of the very serious anomalies in what they do and in what they claim. So, yeah, I think that the world of conspiracy has been treated very unfairly, and sometimes it has itself to blame. But I think more often it's because, yeah, there is a social conditioning where we are told we must not be interested in this, where we are told that those who believe it are foolish people that must not be taken seriously. But then you look and you have a good hard look at it and you realize that really isn't the case. So that's, you know, that's what I'm trying to put throughout the book is not only to look at the philosophy if you like, around conspiracies and the social sort of uh, influences around it, but also to look at the evidence, because that's the most crucial thing of all. Okay, um, if we sort of mention 911, because that's such a massive um, subject, but there's obviously so many different groups out there now who have this uh, 911 truth movement, all, all different people like firemen, architects and so on, um, is that something that you know has, has sort of um, ignited people to think about the world of conspiracies in a way? Well, I think that the 9-11 event in itself has in many ways flagged up uh, a kind of inherent doubt that many people had in their gut anyway about believing in authorities. It's very interesting that when the 10th anniversary of 9-11 occurred, there were various polls taken around the world. And it quickly becomes clear when you put all those polls together that somewhere in the region of 50% of the world's population does not believe the official story of 9-11. Now, that is a huge number of people, and that is incredibly significant. And these people are not necessarily conspiracy theorists, and some of them have you know, differing views as to what they thought did happen, but they agree that we have not been told the whole story. And there's a large amount of people that certainly believe it was a allowed to happen uh, alongside the people who believe it was made to happen. And yeah, I, I think things like this really do expose the, the reality that many people are, you know, they have a tendency towards conspiracy thinking that the mainstream does not reflect. The mainstream media would make you think the conspiracy theorists are very few and far between. But then you look at the polls and in fact the reality is, especially with things like David Kelly or Diana, 
the reality is most people are conspiracy theorists. So we're presented with a completely fake view of the world in the media. Uh, and in fact, when you look at the statistics, you realize that, yeah, we are being fed a lie time and time again. But 9-11 has so many anomalies. It's not just one or two. Because conspiracy theorists you know, are often accused of plucking things out of context. Um, you have to look for clusters of anomalies. And when you look at 9-11, which the book, again, has to cover in some detail, you realize there are so many clusters of anomalies that we cannot possibly have been told the whole truth. We just cannot. And when you get very good researchers like David Ray Griffin, who you know, is not a sensationalist in any way. He's a Christian theologian. He's got no axe to grind. He's a moral man. When you look at his just absolutely level-headed, cool analysis of the official account of 9-11, and he sets it against what actually happened, you know, within one chapter you realize, okay, we have clearly been lied to. Now, where the ultimate truth beyond that lies, so what you then choose to believe did happen on 9-11, is, of course, another story. And you've got different camps. I mean, one unfortunate phenomenon, we have some camps fight each other. Some believe the towers were brought down using conventional, what you might call, nanothermate explosives. Uh, others think that some kind of free energy device was used. Um, I personally think the divisions are unfortunate and unnecessary because they're both agreeing that the towers did not collapse naturally, which I think most people with any knowledge of architecture and engineering could tell you they could not and should not have pancaked down in the way they did without something else happening inside to enable that. So this is the thing, you put it all together and it's not just 9-11, you can do this with many other things, which you know I explored it in my previous book, The Truth Agenda. By the way, there's a new version of that imminent um but in that you know it's that you apply the truth agenda you take any one sort of bastion of history or something we are told to believe in and you just apply some fairly basic questions and observations as to whether or not we've been told the truth and nine times out of ten we haven't and anybody can do this and and then of course you have to start to say well what is going on? So yes, when very big things happen, like 9-11 or indeed JFK, if you want to go back earlier, which is of course 50 years ago this year, um, you realize a lot of people have disquiet in their gut about them. And that's so important to explore and not just to dismiss. Okay, another anniversary we've just had has been um, 7-7 um, the other week. Um, I just wonder... Obviously, in America with 911, there, there is quite a big groundswell of opinion about that. But it doesn't seem to have taken off as much in this country with 7-7 as it has in America. Would you agree? I think there's two reasons for that. I mean, I think, number one, in the same way we've seen this phenomenon in, Amer in America. Now, that is gradually reversing as the kind of the emotional connection to what happened begins to fade. You're getting more and more American 9-11 truthers. But certainly in the early years, um, there was much more reluctance to question what had really happened. Because, of course, if you say that your own government is lying to you, if you say that they are willing, perhaps, or elements within that government, let's say that, are willing to sacrifice around 3,000 uh, 3, lives to 
further some secret agenda. That's very frightening. It's unsettling. It doesn't make you feel safe in the world you're living in, which, of course, we're not. But we like to kid ourselves that we are. And I think we're seeing the same phenomenon here in Britain. I think 7-7 was too close to home. It almost seemed disrespectful to start questioning it. But also, if you start concluding that our own government might blow you up when you're on an underground, uh, underground train or indeed a bus... Uh, yeah, that's very unsettling. People don't want to talk about it. So I think it's the same thing. It's taken a few years for people to begin to think, well, maybe, maybe we weren't told the whole truth. I mean, that was pretty clear to those who were concentrating very early on. So many anomalies, the, the, you know, the train that the bombers caught, we are told, did not run that day. And then the government had to adjust adjust it and say oh sorry yes of course they caught another train uh, you've got a lot of anomalies around the bus and why that blew up and where it blew up um, and even if you take the trains you had eyewitnesses on the day who said that the explosions came up from beneath the carriages and indeed some of the photographic evidence does support that you can see blasts have come up from underneath now that of course clearly says these were not rucksack bombs on the top and there's a lot of arguing about you know who these bombers were did they really know they were even carrying live explosives we know there were drills on uh, 77 as indeed there were on 911 um, a man called Peter Power, who was a security consultant with a lot of knowledge, said on the day of 7-7, there were exercises with that, which actually postulated explosives going off at precisely the stations they did. So a lot of people think something flew under the radar of these drills, but whether the men really were planning to bomb or had just been put up to it has never been decided. So you've got all the anomalies and the evidence, but of course the other reason I think that it's harder to put your finger on what happened on 7-7 is that so much of it happened off camera. When 9-11, you can analyze the towers collapsing, you can see so much of it. Now, with 7-7, you've got a few murky bits of video, which are very contentious. Um, most of it is just hearsay. You don't see it. You can't analyze things like building collapses or whatever. So I think that's another reason why it's slightly harder to get to grips with the conspiracy theories around that because it's not so in your face. It is not so obvious. And I think those two aspects, the reluctance to face the truth, potential truth and also that the lack of clear visual evidence I think has led to more of a, a reluctance to uh, go there but that said I mean in the truth communities I mean certainly a, a large amount of people certainly do question 7-7 so I, I think that will as the years go by will begin to be questioned more and more by anybody who's uh, really concentrating. Okay um if we go back a year, um, we were getting ready for the Olympics and it was the year 2012, etc. And there was a whole uh, idea of conspiracy is going to happen with the Olympics and maybe the, the Queen's Jubilee and so on. And nothing did happen. Is that perhaps a danger that some conspiracy theories go, go into the future too much rather than, you know, wait and see what happens sort of thing? 
Well, I mean, the Olympic uh, conspiracy theories, I, I think they're very interesting. They reveal something important because, yes, so in the run-up to the Olympics, there was a lot of fear that there might be some kind of false flag terror attack, you know, some kind of inside job there. And there's certainly been a lot of seeding of fear around the Olympics. I mean, you'd had the TV series uh, Spooks Code 9, which had indeed fictionalized the Olympic Stadium being blown up by an atomic bomb. That caused a lot of fear. Um, you have missiles being placed on roofs around the Olympics. You know, it, it all seemed to be cranking up the fear. So I do think there was certainly a kind of a social conditioning there to uh, attach fear to it, which was a shame. Now, of course, when nothing happened, the conspiracy theorists were very criticized. But I, you've got to look at that two ways. I mean, A, there was almost, I think, from some people, disappointment that nothing happened. Well, why would you be disappointed that hundreds or thousands, you know, didn't die? We surely, we don't want that to happen. And I think what it was was because there'd been such a kind of fixation on it. It, it almost like felt like a letdown, not because people really wanted anybody to die, to die, but they wanted the conspiracy world to be proven right. But the other way of looking at it is this, which is that maybe the fuss that was made, and there was quite a public awareness of potential difficulties around the Olympics and attacks that could happen, maybe the conspiracy world managed to raise the profile of those fears so much that actually had anything occurred, it would have been too obvious. It would have been almost like you know, just so blindingly obvious that uh, it was a false flag attack. They would have given themselves away. In which case, you could say, well, it's a happy victory for the conspiracy world that nothing did happen. Uh, and this is the thing. So you can get the attack saying, well, you shouldn't have said that. But you can equally say, yeah, but if we hadn't have said that, maybe it's more likely something would have happened. So this is the thing. I think you, you always have to realize there are uncertain outcomes. If enough people shout about a potential danger coming up, it might help prevent that danger. Well, this can only be a good thing. And if it transpires that the conspiracy world has to take a, a little tap on the chin as a result, well, so be it. If it's helping to save lives, that surely is the point of truth campaigning. You, you don't want huge horrors like 9-11 or 7-7 to happen again. So you're trying to spread awareness of the difficulties of the anomalies in the official stories of things like that in the hope that it can be prevented in the future. That, to me, must be the purpose of it. Otherwise, yeah, you're just indulging in fear and horror for the sake of it. Well, that serves nobody. That just creates a world of more fear. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel bad in any way that nothing happened. It's fantastic. I felt much better when it didn't. Uh, and I think all power to those that raise potential difficulties because it could have gone that way. And maybe it didn't because it was talked about. Okay. Um, if we to the present we're right in the middle of a massive heat wave and it's another example of um, these extremes of weather in the book you you talk about the heart facility which is in based in Alaska um, and some conspiracy theorists feel that that is having some effect on the weather could you say a little bit more about what how that is affecting the weather perhaps 
I mean, if any listeners don't know, HARP is a project that basically has been used to test military communications and uh, basically they're, they're toying with the ionosphere. They're, they're trying to see what effects they can create by sending very high-powered signals up into the ionosphere. Now, there is a particularly big complex based in Alaska, which has a huge array of aerials. Um, and there's no question it's capable of some powerful things. Now, they have created fake auroras, for instance, in the sky. So it can do pretty special stuff. Um, and they, they do use it to communicate with military submarines. They're trying to sort of bounce signals around the world where they don't need satellites in the event of the satellites all going down. The problem we have is that they also have the capability to beam signals down that could either affect the weather, could either affect geophysical things like earthquakes, or indeed us and our brainwaves. <clears throat> this is where you then get the fear problem. Because there's no direct evidence that HARP has ever been used to create an earthquake or unusual weather, uh, and yet so many people believe it. And I think this is where the authorities have a problem. Because the authorities are clearly not straight about telling us what they're really doing in places like HARP, you're going to get people filling in the gaps themselves with fears. <clears throat> Bear in mind, you've got people like Zbigniew Brzezinski, who is one of Obama's kind of uh, powers behind the throne. He certainly helped put Obama there. Uh, Brzezinski wrote a book called Grand Chessboard some years ago in which he pretty much laid out the whole New World Order project and said, so what? We need to do this. America needs to be powerful. We need to police the world. And that's perfectly good and reasonable to want to do that. <clears throat> and in it, he actually advocates uh, that satellites or other devices could be used to uh, basically beam signals down which could subdue whole populations. So he says this as if this is a marvellous thing and we should, of course, think about doing this. So this is the problem. You've got people who are genuinely in power who have proposed doing this and people feel that things like HARP may well give them the capabilities to do this. Now, whether that does mean that every earthquake or volcano or indeed heat wave that occurs is due to harp i personally find unlikely but it is not impossible that it has been used on occasion to maybe create certain things some people think hurricanes have been directed at difficult times to you know sway things some people think the huge tsunamis which of course we've had in the last 10 years may have been caused by harp well maybe maybe not um but when you then consider that uh, the authorities are claiming that they are closing harp down HARP is currently, we are told, on hold because they've run out of money, then you have to wonder, is that in itself a lie or is HARP now no longer operational? Now, there is a caveat to that because the authorities have said DARPA, which is a, a defense organization, a U.S. defense uh, sort of division, they have said they might still use the facility for their own end. So immediately, of course, it is going to prick up at that. But officially, HARP is not actually functioning at the moment. Um, but that's going to come down to whether you believe that uh, or whether you, of course, think that that's just another distraction. So, But again, what this all speaks of, same with chemtrails, the belief that you know the atmosphere is being seeded either with suppressants or poisons or some kind of weird climate control. <clears throat> again, you've got a similar thing. The fact that so many people are willing to believe that's going on is a savage indictment 
of the authorities who are so distrusted that so many of us are more than happy to believe that they might be out to kill us all. And if I was anybody in power, and I talk about this in the conspiracies book, you know, I conclude with this, I would want to address that. The fact that they still are not straight about these things and then complain that they're a conspiracy theorist isn't fair. They land themselves in it, and if they don't want conspiracies uh, or people believing in them, then they'd better pull the socks up and actually tell us the truth about what's going on. But instead, they never do, not on anything, whether it's about Hillsborough, Jimmy Savile, or the prison surveillance network. Again and again, we're seeing revelations that show we are being basically lied to on every level, and we are being monitored. And it is the Orwellian world that conspiracy theorists have been talking about for years. So this is the problem. So things like Harp, yep, they are there. How they are really being used, we don't know. But you cannot blame anybody for being suspicious. Yeah, because that brings me on to my next point, because you uh, mentioned about WikiLeaks in the book. But since the book's been published, we've had this uh, guy, Snowden, who's um, sort of blown blown open a lot of um, stuff that's been going on in spying and tapping and so on. Um, the idea of whistleblowers, do you think that is going to sort of give conspiracy theory theorists a sort of stronger platform to say that this is actually the truth that's happening well i think that people like edward snowden of course i mean they provide a service in as much as they they certainly lift the lid on what's going on uh there are conspiracy theories however around snowden himself because some say it's a distraction in the same way as i discuss in the book that some say wikileaks was a distraction and that, in fact, that it's kind of it's used to reveal things that the authorities actually want revealed, but in such a way, because they could never announce it officially, in such a way where they don't have to confront it head on. I mean, for instance, the fact that we now know all our emails, all our calls, any electronic communication or web search is theoretically under surveillance which, of course, most conspiracy theorists believed anyway. But now we know that for sure. You could argue it makes us more docile. It makes us more malleable and controllable because we are aware that that's going on. Now, they couldn't ever admit that because there'd be an outcry. But now it's kind of snuck out. They can then wave the finger and say, oh, well, it's for your own good. We only did it to protect you. And it kind of works because people are already shrugging and going, oh, well, you know, there we are. We don't want to be blown up, so we better go with it. So there is a view that people like Snowden now you know I don't know this is true but he might be certainly being used to reveal things that they want out there and ditto WikiLeaks because the WikiLeaks really didn't tell us that much that we couldn't have guessed was going on um, but then on the other hand there's a lot of gaps why in WikiLeaks was there nothing about 9-11 absolutely nothing. Now, Julian Assange has got a record of saying he doesn't believe in 9-11 conspiracy theories. Many people find that impossible to believe, because even if you don't go the whole hog and you don't think it was an inside job, everybody acknowledges that they certainly didn't tell the whole truth about what they knew about potential attacks and when they were coming. And that's been acknowledged in even the official intelligence world. The thought that there wasn't a single document that referred to any of that makes some people think the WikiLeaks revelations were very selective. And some people think there's something similar to going on with the prison system and the whole GCHQ thing. Yes, so now we know we're under surveillance, but you can bet your life that that is almost a magician's sleight of hand we're being sort of distracted to look at that 
So what are we not seeing? What are we not focusing on that we should be? Because we're getting very fixated on this one thing. So, yeah, it's interesting. On one level, it's good that it's come out, of course. On the other level, it leaves you stuck in a world where this surveillance isn't going to go away anytime soon. And the outcry has already been and gone. And now all the focus is on Snowden and the kind of the, the media circus around him and not on the issues. And this is what happens again and again, which we saw also with the Rupert Murdoch revelations, the phone hacking scandal, which again I discuss in the conspiracies book. Uh, yep, that needed to come out, but it was used to actually distract from the biggest revelation of all to come out of that, which was that the Murdoch empire was controlling governments, certainly the British government, whether Labour or Tory, uh, or indeed Liberal Democrat, um, they were being controlled from behind the scenes. And presumably that's probably still going on for all the apparent criticism of Murdoch. And that was glossed over in five minutes. And instead we just saw endless shots of Steve Coogan on TV uh, and not anywhere near enough discussion about the hundreds and hundreds of meetings, uh, very high level between ministers and prime ministers and Murdoch staff, which showed that we were being ruled by proxy, basically. So again, they're very clever. They focus, uh, focus us on one thing. Uh, I think in the hope, very often right, that we then will forget all the other really big stuff. So we have to be very careful, I think, that we don't get too distracted. Um, you've Obviously, the book has, has come out, but since the, the book was written, there's, there's been um, the Sandy Hook massacre, <coughs> Boston bombings, and then in London, in Woolwich. Um, a lot of people are already saying these are, are all false flag attacks. Have you got any viewpoint on these at all? I mean, obviously, when you write a book, you know, there's stuff going on all the time, yeah. so you can't include everything. It, it doesn't really make any difference because in the book I include other examples that have been accused of being false flag. For instance, the Norwegian massacre of a couple of years ago, that's discussed in there and other shootings. So it doesn't matter. You know, the essentials are the same. And the Boston uh, marathon bombings and the Sandy Hook accusations, that it's just the same pattern, is that when you get big atrocities, you seem to very rapidly get conspiracy theories that accuse them of being fake either of you know actually having happened but we've not been told the whole truth or uh, you know some people believe the whole things are staged and they're actors and all of this um i have some difficulties with some aspects of that because to me for instance if you take the boston marathon you know hiring 30 actors to lie down and pour ketchup on themselves that's something very very likely to be revealed all too soon i would have thought the kinds of minds that would uh, engineer things like 9-11 and kill 3,000 people wouldn't be too bothered about killing a few people on a Boston street so I think it would be easier for them to actually do it but that doesn't mean we've been told the truth about how it's happened uh, and in fact in the, the new version of the Truth Agenda book which say should be out in the next couple of weeks uh, I do discuss Boston marathons and I do discuss the, the Woolwich events because although Truth Agenda is not fixated solely on conspiracies it's much more about how we can balance all this with positive consciousness Nonetheless, you need to talk about them. And, yeah, the whole Woolwich attack is very odd. Uh, for a man who we claimed they attempted to dismember, there's very little blood on the ground. Why did the attackers hover around for so long, waiting to be arrested and indeed shot? Um, if that was false flag, of course, why? 
Uh, and you could argue that the uh, sort of uprising we've seen from certain elements of society against the Muslim population is maybe why. Some people think there is an attempt to cause divisions in our nation. Uh, and certainly it has, you know, encouraged more hatred towards the Muslim world, which is a great shame. Now, even if it happened exactly as we've been told, and it isn't false flag, uh, nonetheless, I think the reaction has been foolish. Uh, I think to tar, uh, you know, a whole <laughs> religious, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, community uh, is foolish, very foolish for the actions of a very few people. But it may well be that we are encouraged, that we are conditioned to hate because a divided society is much easier to control than a coherent and happy and successful one. And I think we need to be very, very careful whether these attacks are real or whether they're faked, in either case, never to react in the way that uh, the state might want you to react if you look at the conspiracy view of it. So we do need to be ever so careful with all these things. Okay. Um, we're going to wind up the interview in a minute. I just wanted to mention that you're going to be speaking at the Glastonbury Symposium very soon. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what happens there? Yeah, if anybody's listening, uh, next week uh, we have uh, the latest Glastonbury Symposium. It starts on the 25th, uh, three days, goes through to the 28th. Um, it, it's if you've never been, I mean, Glastonbury is a marvellous place anyway, and you've got the tour and you've got the Abbey, and it's got a feeling about it. But the conference is held in the town hall, and we sort of dress it up and cocoon it with banners and beautiful lighting, and so it, you can come in and <clears throat> you can indulge in the whole world of the alternative for three days. We've got lots of different speakers covering every angle from conspiracies to spirituality to consciousness, uh, and all points in between. And uh, we've been running now for 23 years, and it's one of the most successful conferences uh, in the country because I think we managed to focus a lot of different things <clears throat> in a way that's not in any way judgmental. And people can come and mix with other people that may share their views. You're not going to feel out of place at the Glastonbury Symposium if you're interested in anything alternative. It really is a good place to come. Now, I know I'm biased because I'm part of it, but I didn't start it. And it, it already had an atmosphere before I arrived on the scene whenever, 18 years ago. So it, it really is quite something. So if anybody wants to have a look, if they, they go to glastonburysymposium.co.uk, uh, you'll find out all about it. And uh, yeah, it, it's a, a great forum for sharing the ideas of the moment and also looking forward to where we can go in future and make things better because that's the whole purpose of it. Right. And you're also coming over to Southend in November, on Saturday the 2nd of November, to speak at the Interdimensional Minds of Awareness Conference. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what you're going to be speaking about there? Uh, yes, uh, I'm looking forward to that very much. There's a great scene in Southend, as you know. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm very honoured to be there. I'm going to basically do a condensed version of the Conspiracies book. Um, so I'm now, one of my newest presentations, it's called A Conspiracy History of the World. And it really does put the pieces together. It gives an overview of how conspiracy and the thinking around conspiracy has been with us since time began. And obviously concentrating very much on 20th and, and 21st century conspiracies, but also trying to give you the, the overview of the background to what has led to the world we're in today, where there is so much going on that you cannot trust, <clears throat> and why it is that this shouldn't have occurred. And how it is that we can all help expose this evidence and get a proper conversation going in the mainstream. So that is certainly what I will be discussing.
Okay, well, we'll put all the details on the website for those two conferences, and we wish you well with the uh, sales and um, the in- interest in the book, Conspiracies. Thank you. Can I just say, if anybody's interested in learning about the book, uh, Conspiracies, and indeed the, the new Truth Agenda, if they go to truthagenda.org, truthagenda.org, you can find out all about the books and where I'm speaking, and there's some videos to watch and that. So have a look if you're curious. Okay, well, thank you ever so much, Andy, and wish you well. Thank you.